Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for being with us today. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about the phrase, made in America. It's a really common and familiar phrase in this country, something we say all the time, something we say we cherish a lot of the time. But is it something, is it something that means the same today? that it used to mean years and years ago. Buy American, hire American is the way President Donald Trump has expressed his desire to lift up the idea of made in America. What does he mean by that? Does he mean something different from what people used to mean when they would say things like that? Think about the cars that we make and buy in this country. What does it mean If they're made in America, does that mean that the parts were all made in America? Does that mean they were assembled here? What does that really mean? We're going to talk about that with Brent Snavely, an auto reporter at the Detroit Free Press, and Ravi Anupindi, who is a professor of operations research and management at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. So you're not going to want to miss that conversation. We're also going to want to hear from you on that. What do you think about the idea of Made in America? And is it still important? Is that still a value we want to lift up here in the United States? But first, next week marks the end of President Trump's first 100 days in office. Presidential historian and Pulitzer Prize winning author Doris Kearns Goodwin recently visited Oakland University to talk about the first days of Trump's administration. She studied many presidencies throughout American history, maybe more than almost anybody else. But she tells Detroit Today producer Jake Neer she has never seen anything quite like this. I'm not sure that I've ever seen 100 days before that the tone shifts as much from day to day. So it's hard to give it an overall sense, although I saw that President Trump said the other day that he would have the most extraordinary 100 days ever in history. (laughs) So, but, you know, but it looked for a while as if things were in chaos and that there were problems that were set domestically with the Obamacare failing to be repealed and the chaos within the White House staff. And and who expected the last few days with all the foreign policy initiatives? Suddenly, each day you wake up, Syria, now Afghanistan. So um, we knew that it was unpredictable, but I guess it's even more unpredictable than I would have thought. Well, I was going to say the most literal sense of the, the term, maybe extraordinary, is the right word for these hundred days. No, I, I think that's right. And I think it's in part because we didn't know for sure where his thoughts were on a lot of the issues. And so one of the things he would say in the in the debates and in the in the candidacy part, he's been able to change totally here. And so you couldn't have guessed where he would land on, certainly on these foreign policy issues. So you touched on it briefly, but uh, considering that in the first hundred days of a presidency that a president would use his uh, biggest and uh, most uh, potent non-nuclear weapon in his arsenal, what does that say about the tone that's being set? Well, you know, clearly it seems to me that the desire that he voiced in the campaign to make America feel great again and a powerful nation is being illustrated with weaponry right now. You know, whether it was the bombing of Syria or now, I've never even heard this word before, the mother of all bombs. It's just a terrible word. But it just suggests making a clear statement and the team he chose around him in the military and intelligence area 
were people who believed in that as well, obviously, because I think they've been very influential. Well, one thing that we're seeing is a narrative within the administration uh, where there's some serious tension, it seems like right now, between very different factions, sort of represented by Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner. Um, is that something that we often see in a presidency where there is these very, very specific personalities that have very specific agendas um, that are feuding? And I mean, is that something that we've seen before and what would be the historical context of what we could expect to see going forward? Well, the one interesting thing when I heard President Trump say to both of them, you guys just work it out, it did remind me of Franklin Roosevelt in the sense that he had clearly within his cabinet, people who believed different ways of doing, however, the same things that you would agree on on values. So, for example, Harry Hopkins in the New Deal period thought you should just get people short-term jobs right away, just give them that sense of dignity, whatever the job is. And and Morgenthau believed that it should be, Ickes rather, believed that it should be long-term jobs that would build bridges, almost like infrastructure. And the two of them would fight a lot, finally fought in public, and he made them come on a boat trip with them to the Panama Canal and buried the hatchet. And he literally then wrote the ship log saying, in this ocean body, the fight between Ickes and Hopkins has been buried in the sea. But there wasn't a big parameter. I mean, they both agreed that the New Deal should be helping people to restore jobs, but one believed it was, you just had to do it right now, and the other thought, unless it was a long-term project, could make money in the long run, that it wasn't a good thing. Of course, it's very different what we're hearing about how Trump is sort of reacting to this compared to that. It's that um, we we might see uh, Steve Bannon and, and his sort of ideology pushed out, which is interesting for the electorate, the people who actually voted Trump in, uh, it, do you sense that there is any sort of effort to bring all the factions together and bury the hatchet? It doesn't seem like there's much of that, at least from what we're hearing in the media right now. You know, it certainly seems important in the long run for President Trump to remember the people that voted for him in the election and who changed the election in some ways. And that's why I always thought he was going to go for infrastructure first. And whether that was the Bannon wing, it was certainly the wing of the party that people who had formerly been Democrats were willing to go with Trump because they thought he was going to bring back jobs. And instead, the wall and the idea of the Muslim ban and then the idea of Obamacare repeal became first. And now these foreign policy adventures. So in the long run, he's, he's now making the Republicans happy. Um, and, but he's, that coalition that he built was built on something wider than that, so it seems. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to the people who voted for him. Uh, I was going to say that it, it seems like it would be easy to focus on Trump as, a, as an individual, as the president of the United States, especially because he's got such a electric personality. I mean, love him or hate him, he is uh, very interesting to watch and focus on. But it seems to me that in all branches of government, we're going through extraordinary times right now. No, I think that's really true. I mean, and it's, it's, it precedes Trump. I mean, we've seen now more than a decade or two decades, really, of difficulty in Congress doing anything together and that sense of polarization and a broken Washington that precedes him and is still being seen even within the factions of the party. And I think it's in part because they don't spend time with each other the same way they used to on the Hill. They go home on the weekends. They're raising money. They're in districts that allow them to only be whatever they people in the district want them to be. And there's no benefit of reaching across party lines or even across factional lines. And it's a problem for democracy. And, and I keep thinking that something's going to make the fever break, but it hasn't yet.
One thing I wanted to ask you about, and for somewhat selfish reasons, I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of The Bully Pulpit, uh, your book, and something that's really extraordinary thinking about that, the context of how journalists and public officials, even the President of the United States in, around in the progressive era, you know, their relationship, um, if all, if anything, it's almost so close that it feels unethical at least to this, to this modern journalist. Uh, and now it's so different. I'm just wondering if you could talk about the relationship that the Trump administration has, the tone that it struck with the media. I mean, no matter what, and it's always true that presidents are going to be angry with individual members of the media, maybe with the media as a whole, but they know that in a democracy that the journalist world is their channel to the public at large. And our best presidents have been able to mediate that in a very good way. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt actually made friends with the journalists, but he was willing to accept that they would criticize him at certain points, and he knew that he had to for them to retain their own integrity. So when one journalist wrote a review of his memoir um, about the Spanish-American War, and the journalist was very well known, and he said that Teddy made himself so much the center of attention of every single battle, of every single moment of the war, he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. And instead of getting mad, what does Teddy do? He writes him a letter and says, I've always wanted to make your acquaintance, so come see me. And at first the journalist was reluctant because he was afraid friendship might then make it impossible to be objective. But Teddy said, nope, you're going to criticize me, I'm going to criticize you, and we can have friendships. And, and, Teddy, and FDR, too, he had two press conferences a week, so he knew the press. And there'll always be tensions, but the more you can get along with them, and the more today, I think more than ever, investigative reporting is going to be really important, as it was at the turn of the 20th century. But what about that difference now that you can reach the public directly as president, that you could tweet and that you can put out your own message uh, directly to the people? How does that change things? I think what it's really changed is when Teddy Roosevelt talked about the bully pulpit, he meant the power the president has to mobilize public opinion through the press, essentially. And now there's so many bully pulpits, and lots of people have those echo chambers. And you're right, a tweet can get past anything. And so it, it fragments the attention, but it also gives more power to the individual than they might have had and less power to the traditional journalist world. Okay, that was presidential historian and Pulitzer Prize winning author Doris Kearns Goodwin speaking with Detroit Today producer Jake Neer about Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. She recently spoke at Oakland University. Coming up next, we're going to talk about what it means to buy American, hire American. We're going to want to hear from you. What do those phrases mean when you hear them? 313-577-1019 on the phones. Stay with us on Detroit Today.